Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards, and I'm excited to have you along with me today. I've found a really interesting source that I want to share with you today. Uh, so if you are a scholar of Scottish clans, then this will have appeal to you because you'll get to see where some of the information comes from that we see in so many common sources, and you're like, oh, okay, that's where that comes from. Uh, if you haven't already read this and are very familiar with it. And if you are new to Scottish clans, this is going to be interesting because it is a first-hand report, although biased, but it is a first-hand account, a primary source for what the Highland clans looked like. Now, this is a report made by General Wade to the, the British government, the uh, of the this is dated nine, uh, 1724 so this would be the Hanoverian government of of the United Kingdom and so this is written from General Wade's experience and his actual stay in, in years for a few years in the Highlands he actually got to know the area pretty good now it did not this isn't a particularly endearing account of the Highlands of Scotland in 1724 but it is, it is a, an interesting, it's interesting to look at the Highlands from an outsider's point of view during a time when the clans were still running around as such. Not, I know we, we can technically say that the clans exist today, but they don't, they don't operate or look the same today as they did in this time period. And, and this is interesting also because it's the later time period that you could actually see the clans in operation. Now, I'm not going to say or make the claim that the clans at, in 1724 looked and operated exactly the same as they had in the 1400s. There had been changes, but we have General Wade here and his, him staying in the Highlands and giving us an account of what he observed at that time. So this is a really, I think, a valuable account. And once I, again, if you're, if you're a beginner, just new to the subject, this will be a good a good episode to teach you what were clans like, what, how are they structured, how are they organized, how they operate, and this is not a really in-depth, super into the weeds account of the clan. So hopefully, this is a nice one for those of you who maybe previous episodes have gone right over your head. I'm just using a lot of words that you're not familiar with. Yeah, we're not going to get too scholarly or academic, aside from the fact that we're valuing a primary source in academia, that this this is somewhat valuable. Although although we don't put, I mean, there, there, there can be problems with even primary sources, people who are right there watching it happen because we all look through some sort of lens. Anyway, what does is, what is General Wade teach us about the Highlands? First of all, I want to tell you where I got this from. I accessed this through electricscotland.com. I'll post a link to it in the show notes so that you can get there yourself. I'm not going to have time to go over every single detail of this or what it really teaches us and really break it down, but I'm just going to share with you some of the highlights that I found in here. Okay. The, uh, the first thing that I want to talk about when it comes to this report and what it teaches us about the Highland clans, what, one thing it teaches us how clans operate. He mentions a chief. Uh, this would be a person who is in charge of the clan, who is recognized as the representative of the senior branch of the of this clan. The clan, the clan members, 
will often claim descent from a common ancestor as the chief. So they see themselves not as different species. Like in some other cultures, the aristocracy, they don't even view the the lower ranks and classes of their society as like really they're almost like a different species. And, and not so in the highlands. The very upper echelon of their society were acknowledged as springing from a common source as the average clan member. Now, was this true? In some cases, it was. I've, I've always wondered about this. The simplistic view of clans is that they have, it's just a, like in the McPherson Territory, which was right in the, at the southern large portion of Straths Bay in the central highlands, a region that was earlier called Badenoch. The McPherson, I look at, I had a map, and I've told you about this map before. It shows the clan territories on it. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's where the McPhersons lived. Well, not everybody in there would have the same surname. And even people who did have the, the, a different surname from the chief might still be related to him. But also some people who might have the same surname might not be related to him. Just somewhere along the line, because the guy named McPherson was in charge of that area, and they owed him their loyalty, they took upon this, themselves the same last name. I've mentioned that in earlier episodes before. But there was a perception that there was some commonality there. Now, I've, I've thought a lot about this. And I thought, well, how, how many of the clan, how much of the clan were actually related to the chief and, and descend from a common ancestor? Were these numbers that they pull up, were they realistic? And, and there's a, a later part of this, a really interesting thing here in this Wade's report from 1724. He actually talks about the fighting men that each different clan could call to the battlefield. Now, this, this is not an exhaustive list of clans by any means, but... It, uh, it talks about, like, the Duke of Argyle could bring 4,000 men to a battlefield, just, just himself. It's not talking about alliances. He could, he could put that many people on the field of battle. You have um, the Fraser Lord Lovett. He could, he could round up 800 men. And, and, so, and, and I'm not going to go list all the, the different chieftains and how many men they could bring up. I, or I might do it later, but right now I'm just thinking, is that realistic? And out of all those men, how many were actually kin to him? Well, I actually started thinking about my own family. My mom's side of the family runs cattle, and, and in their operation has changed over the years. But they've, for a couple of generations, have run cattle out on the Blackfoot River. And every year they have a reunion out there. And last, the last several years, that number of who people, of people who attend that reunion is getting up in the 200 mark. Now, this, these are people descended from my great-grandfather. So we're not talking about a lot of generations back. We're still within very clear living memory of, the, of the, my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. So this is their posterity. Now, I will say that they did have 11 children, but... They, and that's, that's a lot of kids. But you know what? As you read through the, the histories of these clans, a lot of these gentlemen, they married once and the person either passed away or they managed to get rid of that, that wife somehow. And they've already had a few kids by her and then they remarry and have more kids. So, I mean, we're, this is, I think my, my situation with my own family is fairly relatable. 
even if you're conservative, let's say that chief has six or seven kids, it doesn't take very many generations before you have no kidding a few hundred people. And okay, let's just talk fighting age men. I, when I go to the reunion, I, I don't have, we don't have necessarily 200 fighting age men there. But you can, I've, one thing that's shown me is how quickly when, when a priority and a value is placed on having children, how quickly these numbers can grow. And so while if a chief is able to bring, let's say, 500 people to a battlefield, fighting men to a battlefield, okay, maybe not all of them are related to him. But, but after several generations, distantly, a lot of that 500 actually, and I'm not going to come up with percentages because I haven't, I haven't broken it down that tightly, and it would vary from chief to chief and clan to clan. But I'm just saying that after a while within it, in any given clan's territory, after five or six generations, you could come up with a lot of people there that are no kidding descended from the common ancestor. So just wanted to throw that out there when we're talking about this um, because General Wade does actually mention that the idea is that these different people come from the same source. Um, organization, how are they broken down? He doesn't go into a ton of detail on this. He says you have the whole clan or surname, everybody from that clan. And then that was broken down into smaller branches of the clan. And then that's broken down into smaller branches of 50 to 60 men. Now he's used the term men. I'm not sure whether he's talking about strictly fighting men or if he's using the word like mankind and there's 50 to 60 people within this small branch. I, I haven't, I haven't dug that fact out yet. And these different branches and they're scattered in the different areas. Now, if a chief feels the need to summon up his fighting force and the people that are loyal to him through either real or perceived kinship, how does he do that? General Wade mentions that they send forth a runner or a rider who is holding a piece of wood that's shaped in the shape of a cross with the ends burnt on it, and that's called the fiery cross. And this means rally to the appointed place and bring your weapons. All right, now, I mentioned the bias of General Wade earlier. There's several spots in here where he talks about the relationship between the, the chief and the members. He, he uses very condescending terms when he's talking about how the chiefs treat the members, and I want to talk about that for a second. So, oh, well, okay. Let me stick with this. I, I almost got sidetracked there with another fact, but I'll, I'll hold on to that. He, he mentions that the, the, the regular clansmen pay, quote, a servile and abject obedience to the commands of their chieftains. And then down farther in that same report, you see, quote, their blind and servile submission to the commands of their superiors and chieftains and the little regard they have ever paid to the laws of the kingdom. So they are, he, he calls it blind and servile, just blind obedience to their chiefs or chieftains. And, a, and the priority that they place in following their commands is significantly higher than how they feel toward obeying their king's laws, which is, which is interesting. And it's interesting how they view blood relationship and, and the loyalty that comes along with that. And I, I wonder if we lack a little bit of that in our society today. And I'm not advocating that we be more or less obedient to the president and the laws of our land. I'm not at, making any political discussion on that, but it is interesting to see how these people viewed it. 
All right, so going along, just strictly speaking about General Wade's kind of condescending tone toward the relationship between the clan chief and the, and the men, he says that the chiefs exercise, quote, an arbitrary and tyrannical power over them, unquote. And, and you see the term servile slavery pop up again, and his bias comes out again when he talks about, and it's, it kind of, it's kind of contradictory, he says that these clans and tribes live in a state of anarchy and confusion after clearly breaking down his understanding of their social structure and hierarchy and the rules they follow and how do they – then he refers to it as a state of anarchy and confusion. And, and, and maybe that's how he looked at it, that he says this isn't anywhere like the nice orderly things that we have in England or even in the lowlands of Scotland. These Highlanders are crazy wild people and they live without any semblance of law or order. But, but, the, but then he's, he's gone to length at – talking to us about how the order is broken down and who's loyal to who and what do they obey and they did have a system so you see the bias coming out pretty thick here now let me make a comment on this servile submission this blind and servile submission that the clans people expressed to, toward their chief this he makes it sound so groveling but in the same report we have what the clansmen are getting out of this. So let me let me share with you a few of those those things. He says that the the clansmen are quote treated by their tree chiefs with great familiarity unquote. So you have their their belief in coming from a common ancestor that they are kin. And yes, this is the guy that's chosen to represent our family and to lead us, and we owe loyalty to him. But they don't just like the leaders of the clan don't look at the common people at the bottom of the social hierarchy as a different species they they uh, neither do the people on the bottom of those on the bottom of those, the poorest people of the clan neither do they look at their chief as some kind of otherworldly divinely appointed no he's just another one of us that he's from the right family and so he's our leader and so we're just going to follow him now i do want to balance that i i'm just i'm just explaining to you how general wade describes this we could go farther into this and people have michael newton i've i've mentioned his book warriors of the word before he he talks about that no in in some cases the literature is quite clear and the and the poems and the songs that have come down to us that there was some pride and some some looking down the nose from the upper levels of the clan at the rest of the clan so that in reality that did happen so i'm just trying to stick with what general wade says here so they treat each other with great familiarity so, so if you're a clansman and you're owing this loyalty to your chief, he seems to treat you as though you're not some creature that just needs to do everything he says. He, he treats you, as far as General Wade's observations are concerned, fairly, fairly familiarly. And I've read other accounts as well where an Englishman's visiting up there, and he's just appalled that the lower-ranking members of the clan would just walk up to the chief and shake his hand as though they're buddies. He just, that, that was completely beyond him. And, and that's, apparently he observed it. General Wade observes it. That's, it actually happened. So um, it also talks about that a chief would be willing to save one of his clan from prosecution. This is referring specifically to cattle raiding, which was a, like a national pastime in the Highlands. 
they uh, when when somebody pursues the cattle thieves back into a chief's territory, and it was his men that did the, the did the raid and stole the cattle, that he's willing to go to bat for these for these clansmen. It also says, quote, the chiefs of some of these tribes never fail to give countenance and protection to those of their own clan. So they, yeah, they do obey their chiefs with pretty diligent loyalty, but it looks like this is going both ways a little bit here. Another spot, it says that so the, if the men have been out and they have raided and have brought some some goods back, it says that they, sh- quote, share of the plunder, which is sometimes one half or two thirds of what is stolen, so they willingly give back to their chief quite quite a lot. And as we anyway, so so I guess my point in pointing those particular parts of this report out to you is that he paints it as these people are just grovelingly obedient and loyal and blind about it to their chiefs. Yet in other parts of the same report, it looks like they get some stuff back out of it that when they're in trouble, their chief goes to bat for him. He'll, legal prosecution and and fines or whatever is the penalty for that, it looks like he's willing to step in and, and arbitrate or even advocate for his his clan. So it really looks like both people are getting something out of this. Now that's, I think that's all I got to say about that. just seems to be reciprocal. Um, another thing that interesting thing I thought about in here is, so that, keep in mind in the first half of the 1700s, you have two major Jacobite rebellions. Now, for those of you who are just kind of new to Scottish history, you have, you have the Stuart dynasty who'd pr- produced several, several monarchs. I don't have the number off the top of my head for Scotland. And then you have James the sixth, King James the Sixth of Scotland inherits the English throne and becomes comes James the First right there. That's the same James when you talk about the King James version of the Bible. Same gentleman. So that his descendants were eventually ousted off the throne. That the Stuart, the uh, the Stuart the Stuart dynasty that is pushed out off the throne of Britain goes down and takes exile in France. And there they hide out, and they, they actually have a rebellion, and you get to the point where you have James Stewart, and I think he would have been James, well, you yeah, had the James VI, and the Scots would have called him James the Seventh or Eighth. I, I didn't check that real quick. I was This is actually kind of uh, off the top of my head. wasn't part of the plan, but I just thought maybe some people don't know about the Jacobite rebellions, so maybe I should go into it just briefly on this. The Stuarts want the throne back. You know, if you were the king and you got pushed off, you had to leave, you might want it back too. So, the Stuarts make a bid for the throne. Now, in, in Latin, James is Jacobus, or Jacobus, if you're not going to be really strict about your Latin. So, the people who follow this James were called Jacobites. And so, the, these rebellions to put the Stuarts back on the throne, they're called these people who want the Stuarts, a pro-Stuart dynasty, at the expense of the Hanovers, who are now in, in charge in this time period. That you you would if you're on the Stuart side you'd be called a Jacobite. They have a rebellion and an uprising in 1715 and again in 1745. So General Wade's report falls right in between those two. Now there's a there's a common misconception, and I maybe it's only common if you're really new to this, and maybe anybody who spent any, any amount of time in here knows otherwise. But 
the highlands are often perceived as being largely Jacobite. According to General Wade, the highlands can produce about 22,000 fighting men. But he says that, quote, about 10,000 are vassals to the superiors well affected to your majesty's government. In other words, 10,000 of these armed highlanders that are ready to fight are actually pro-Hanoverian. <coughs> and, and, so, and so that leaves 12,000 left over. So 10,000 versus 12,000. So the number is actually really close to half. Half of the Highlanders who are armed and ready to fight are, um, and not quite half, are pro-Hanoverian. That's, that's interesting. That's a lot more evenly distributed than sometimes we see that this Jacobite was a Highland thing. And, and, and maybe the actual Jacobite force is overwhelmingly Highland. But that doesn't mean that, that amongst all the Highlands, it was lopsidedly favoring the Jacobite cause. It, it doesn't appear to be according to James or uh, according to General Wade's report. What are some other interesting things I have in here? Um, oh, he talks about the tradition that the lowlands once belonged to the Highlanders and that that territory was usurped and stolen from them by lowland people and that so that they were justified in any kind of depredation that they could make on the lowlands. Now, I wonder if this is a folk memory of a time where Gaelic was much more widely spoken throughout Scotland than it than it is at this time. At this time, and and once again, Michael Newton's done some really interesting work on this about some of the periphery edges of, of the Gaeltacht. The Gaeltacht would be the areas where Gaelic was the common language. And and it's interesting. He says it's actually clear up until fairly recent times that right on the right up on the edge of the highlands and even out of the mountains slightly where the, the, the language line between the Gaelic and the lowland language, which would have been either Scots or some variety of English, that that line was not a easily discernible line. And and perhaps in thinking that the lowlands once belonged to their people, well, yes, the lowlands did once belong to gales. Now, not that the people actually changed. It's just that a lot of those gales in these lowland places adopt another language. So, But they would use this as an excuse to go and raid the lowlands and steal whatever they could get and whatever they wanted to do. That was their justification for it. Now, what... When they go to the lowlands, what are they doing? General Wade actually talks quite a bit about cattle rustling, as that's how they'd call it out here in the western U.S. Um, the uh, and there's a, there's a Gallic term for it, but I can't remember the the name for it now. As as a person with McFarland ancestors, I probably should know that because the McFarlands were noted cattle thieves, cattle raiders. I don't know what the I don't know what the uh, if there is a polite way to say that. But anyway, they were, an, and that's probably something I should know. But um, there are actually certain clans that General Wade mentions as being decisively engaged in this practice of cattle thieving. And he, so I'll just tell those clans to you. He says specifically the Camerons on the west of the Shire of Inverness, the Mackenzies and others in the Shire of Ross, who were vassals to the late Earl of Seaforth, the McDonald's of Keppoch, the Bredalban men, not very specific there, and the McGregors on the borders of Argyllshire. Now, one thing he says about these guys is that it's interesting. They go out, they go out um, 
in groups of 10 to 30. So these are not huge war bands descending on a place, destroying everything, and making off of it. Probably, if you're that small of a group of people, you're trying to act quickly before a sizable force can gather together and come get you, and stealthily. In fact, and even though the McFarlands aren't mentioned in this, the and I don't I haven't researched exactly when this term came to be, but there came to be a term referred to the McFarlands because they were so notorious for going out under a full moon. Now, anybody who's been out and had to do nighttime activities under a full moon, and I've had to do some of this stuff in the army, you appreciate how much light can actually be put off by a full moon. Anyway, the McFarlands were so adept at this and so known for it that somewhere along the line somebody started calling the the full moon McFarland's lantern. So this is so obviously this is not confined to the clans that General Wade mentions specifically. But he does mention them. He even goes into more detail about the Camerons. He says that when so if you're a wealthy man and you just had the Camerons come down to the highlands and steal your cattle but then you get a, a group together and you go track them back and there you are. You've found yourself in Cameron territory. And you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure it's the Camerons. And you go talk to their chief. Hey, your guy stole my cattle. Then it says that, uh, let me start quoting here. But to put a stop to the practice. Oh, we, we see the term. Let me back up. You see the term Tascal money. And I'm just going to read to you this part. There's another practice used in the Highlands by which the cattle stolen are often recovered, which is by sending persons to that part of the country most suspected and making an offer of a reward to any who will discover the cattle and the persons who stole them. By the temptation of the reward and promise of secrecy, discoveries were often made and restitution obtained. <coughs> so this reward, <coughs> hey, I've got a reward for whoever stole my cattle or whoever can find my cattle that were stolen and bring them back. And then you have people who are probably amongst the party that stole them in the first place say, hey, yeah, I found your cattle. <clears throat> so that money that was offered was tactical money. But it says the Camerons, to put a stop to this practice, they, I'll quote, the whole clan of the Camerons and others since by their example, bound themselves by an oath never to take tactical money nor to inform one against the other. In fact, and so that's that's the end of the quote. In fact, it mentions later that one of the, quote, one of the clan of the Cameron suspected to have taken Taskal money in the nighttime, wait, wait, was in the nighttime, called out of his hut from his wife and children and hanged up near his own door. Another of that tribe, so we're speaking of the Cameron still, for the same crime, as they call it, kept a month in the stocks and afterwards privately made away with. And I don't really know what that term made away with. Like, does it mean they did away with him or pushed him out of the territory into exile and he can't be part of our clan anymore? I don't really know what that means, but that's interesting. Cameron said, no taking Taskal money. Um, yeah, so I think the next part, we're pushing up right about a half an hour for this, and I'd like to kind of keep these episodes pretty close to a half hour. But uh, there is a, another part. Farther down in this report, he actually gives numbers of how many men certain chiefs could call to the battle, to the battlefield. And he also gives a list of clans that are in, re it says, well, one of the, one of the categories, the little, little lists he makes 
is titled, The Underwritten Clans or Tribes Were Engaged in the Late Rebellion. Most of them are armed and com- commit depredations. So he's talking about the 1715 Jacobite Rebellion. So he lists a whole bunch of clans there. And I'm not going to read them to you now, but I'll tell you what I'll do in a, in a little bit. Another uh, list of people, he says, The underwritten, underwritten clans belong to superiors well affected to his majesty. So now you got a list of, of clans whose chiefs are pro-Hanoverian. It says, then another small category, the two clans underwritten for the most part went into rebellion in 1715 without their superiors. So this blind and servile obedience that he often mentions the clans expressing toward their chief, turns out by his own numbers, that's not true. In fact, these are some pretty significant numbers because next to these men who are either pro or against Hanoverian government, he lists the number of men that they can call to the battlefield. And these two clans underwritten for the most part went into rebellion in 1715 without their superiors. It doesn't give you specific clans. It says the Athel men and the Bredalban men. And so whatever clans that li- lived in that area, and some of them went to battle, their, their chiefs did not rise up, but their men did. And the Athel men is listed as 2,000 and the Bredalban men as 1,000. So that's a, lot of, that's a lot of people rising up without their chiefs. And this next category is the clans underwritten were in the late rebellion and are still supposed to be disaffected to his majesty's government. So I really don't know what the difference is between that and that first list I mentioned. The underwritten clans or tribes were engaged in the late rebellion. Most of them are armed and commit depredations. So I guess maybe maybe some of those clans from the first category have come around to the Hanoverians. I haven't actually researched this and figured out, but I'm just trying to look at the titles and see what's the difference here. The second title of this group I just most recently mentioned are still supposed to be disaffected. So maybe this is more current than the 1715 rebellion because remember, this is nine years later. That's a lot of time for people to change sides. And so he lists uh, several clans who are still who, who were involved in the previous rebellion and are still disaffected to the Hanoverians. And next to every clan that he mentions, he lists how many men they can call the battlefield. And he lists several clans that are Roman Catholic because in his mind it seems that there's some kind of connection between the rebellion and, the, and their, what religion they were. And then he goes... Region by region or, or county, he uses the word county, county by county and mentions the, the lairds or the chiefs or the, of those different groups that are well affected to his majesty's government. So he goes through Murray, Nairn, Inverness, Ross, Cromarty, Sutherland, Caithness, and Orkney. And then the rest of it is, I'm not going to go in the rest of it. He's listing solutions to it. And it is more the first part of this report and what we can learn about the actual clans that I thought would be interesting. Now, I didn't list, I didn't mention the clans that he actually mentions as being pro or con, pro or in favor or not in favor of the Hanoverian government. And the reason why I didn't do it is because of this. Check shortly. On my Facebook page, and maybe in the show notes if I get this done in time, I'm about done with this. I, in fact, I think I've got about a 95% solution. I have been on Google Maps, and I have created a, a map that you I can visually represent this report. 
I can show you a certain colored icons within the Highlands, the clans that were anti-Hanoverian and those who are pro-Hanoverian, as well as those this, this little tiny category that I mentioned, the Athol men and the Bredalban men. So I just went and looked which clans are in those areas. Remember, these are guys, 2,000 from Athol and 1,000 from Bredalban, who were involved in the rebellion without their chiefs. And so they'll be represented in orange. And if you can, if you check this out and you notice that I need to adjust it a little bit, I'm completely open to suggestion here. And I will have a, a once again, I'll have a link to this electricscotland.com site where you can access this general wage report. But if you want to go check out my Facebook page, if you don't see it in the show notes for this, this episode, and I'll have a link very shortly to this map. And all you can do is, is, is at a glance, you should be able to look at it and, and visually dis- review the, the geographical distribution of the clans that were for or against the Hanovers. And it's interesting because there, there is, it looks like there is a trend geographically to which tribes or clans, my general wage report got stuck in my head now, I'm calling them tribes, which clans were pro-Hanoverian. They tend to be clustered in a certain area, and then the ones that are against also have their kind of a trend of their geographical distribution. I, I always think it's fun to try to map this out and visually display it. I'm a very visual learner, and, and if that can help you guys, then I'd be glad to help. I'm not even charging you for it. Merry Christmas. So <clears throat> I hope that's been informative for you. Um, I can't wait. I've already got the next like two or three podcasts planned out, and some of you are like, well, big whoop. Some people plan their whole year out. And well, that's awesome, and I'm striving to be better and better all the time, and maybe someday I'll have it like that. But I haven't been doing that. I've just been kind of thinking week to week, hmm, what do I want to do next? And But I've just had these ideas coming to me, and I, so I've got a, a few farther out there that I'm ex- excited to get to. One one topic that I want to cover, and this can turn into a series, is I, you know I've done a few episodes now on feuds between different clans. I would actually like to highlight alliances between different clans because as many times as you see people feuding you also see people teaming up and as an example of one we've already discussed you have the guns versus the keiths the keiths during that first engagement that i mentioned the the first big engagement the battle of tanakh Moor, they reached out to the Mackays of Strathnaver, who also then reached out to the mcleods of ascent and so you had these three groups get together now later on these, these alliances and feuds are really should, you got to understand that there's a period of time that that might be accurate and a period of time that that might not be accurate. So later on, the guns and they're, they actually intermarry, the gun chiefly family and the Mackay chiefly family actually intermarry with each other. And so that the fact that they're on opposite sides only lasted so long and, and some of them fight and then they get, then they become allies and then they start fighting again. And so you kind of really got to be specific about which time period you're learning about to decide whether this clan and this clan were rivals or allies or whatever. So another one that, so one of these alliance episodes I want to do is I would like to do one on the McFarlands and McGregors. A lot of people don't understand how deep that, that connection goes. It's in most of the popular clan histories that I've read, it mentions very little about any interaction between those two. 
but there is actually significant interaction. Another thing that I want to get into, and I'm not going to have time to do it this episode, but this is something I found recently, and I believe that it is fascinating. Now, the it's a website I found called named, N-A-M-E-D, named, dot publicprofiler.org. This is a group of people who have a project, and it's supposed to be an, uh, a surname project where they look at the distribution of, of different surnames within Britain. So, this website, if you type in, and I hope, and I'll, once again, I can include that, that name or the, the website in the show notes. And you can maybe get a head start on this because I'm going to do another episode where I'm going to talk, talk more about this and how it could relate to learning about the clans of Scotland. But they have, on the website, they have three circles. On the left circle, you type in a name. And on the middle circle, it'll have a map of Britain. And it only shows UK. So it, it shows Northern Ireland, but it doesn't show the rest of the island, the, the Republic of Ireland. It just shows what's part of the UK. It is only a UK project. So if you have a Scandinavian last name, this is not going to be terribly helpful for you. However, if you, your surname is one of the Scottish clans or Scottish surnames generally, this will still be worth it. Or you have a branch of your family that came out of Scotland. See, like, like mine, I don't have a Scottish surname, but I have a couple of different branches of my family tree that go back to Scotland. So if you have that. Now, my last name's Welsh. This works for that too. It's, it's the whole UK that it works for. And it will, with this little, in the middle circle, it has a, like I said, a representation of the UK. And it will show you where today your surname or the surname that you're looking up appears most frequently. And it's, so you'll have hot spots. So, and I'm actually looking, looked up the name McNabb this, as an example. This is fascinating because the McNabs come from the Glen Dochart area but at the, that's at the western end of Loch Tay in Perthshire. That's not where today you find the most McNabs. So it's, and, and it's quite a bit different. It's not, I mean, it's in Scotland, but it's not in, even in close to the same spot in Scotland where you would think based on their historical territory. But I found that a lot of them are. So I'll discuss that in a future episode. And if, once again, if you want to get on that and play around with it, I'll include the web address in the show notes. So I, I hope you've liked learning about the Highland clans as per General Wade. And I hope you're looking forward to these future episodes. I'm ex- excited to share them with you. Once again, always as my invitation to whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's the Podbean app, whether it's the, which you could do by uh, podbean.com slash Scottish clans. You could go to iTunes. You can l- listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> whichever platform you're listening to it on, <clears throat> like or subscribe to it. If you could leave me a review, some feedback on that on that platform, share it with people that you think would be interested in this. The more I even know some friends of mine who are not thrilled with I mean this is not their passion like it is mine, but they like a good story. Or and then some people that I know are really interested in learning about the actual clans of Scotland. Just they're, they're history buffs and they just think this is cool. And so if you can think of somebody like that, please share it with them. There's usually an option on all those platforms to share it, and it's usually all the same symbol, the little box with an arrow coming out the top. Um, if you want to continue the discussion with me, I, I don't I don't even claim to 
be all-knowing on this subject. I'm just passionate about it, and I want to talk to people about it. And so if you've either got something to correct me on or just be polite once again, or you want to ask a further question or you have additional information that wasn't covered, please feel free to pick up that conversation on Facebook. The web address there is facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. I know the name of this podcast is Scottish clans, not clans of Scotland, but the other one was taken. So facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland and leave me a comment, start a dialogue. I'd be happy to discuss this with somebody. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because I don't have a lot of people locally to get into this much detail. I have some good sports around here who don't mind me nerding out on them every once in a while, but I try not to push it. So I hope you have have had an enjoyable time. I've enjoyed having you with me, and I hope you have a great day. Goodbye for now.